0: So welcome back to Thrive, your agency resource. Have you ever thought about employee ownership as a business model for your agency? I know when I had my agency, I definitely considered it, but I had no idea how to go about it or what questions to ask. Well, joining me today is Jennifer Briggs. She's the senior strategy consultant at the Bister Institute, which is actually within the University of California at San Diego. Jennifer, we're going to dive into this conversation. I'm really excited about it, but welcome to the show. um, And thanks for being here.
1: Thanks for having me, Kelly. It's great.
0: So um, can you tell us a little bit more? Because I'm sure most of my audience is not really familiar with the Beister Institute. Tell me a little bit more about the work that you do there. um, And then a little bit more about your own background. Yeah. So the Beister Institute was started by uh, Dr. Bob Beister and his
1: family inside the University of California. But our, our big purpose is to Uh, help employee ownership grow and have this public will to grow even bigger. It's a way of helping more people become capitalists Mm -hmm. by helping people own stock in the company that they own. So basically employees become your shareholders through a trust in an ESOP. Um, So we focus on ESOPs at the Beister Institute. What does ESOP stand for? Employee Stock Ownership Plan. Mm -hmm. So it's a it's a trust that holds stock and then the employees are participants in it. And so the big part is the people that work in a company share in the value they help create. Mm. And that's, that's it. Fundamentally is they, you know, we grow value in our companies, which is something we all want, but your audience um, for that value growth is your own employees. Mm. And so it's a really cool thing, but it is a qualified retirement plan. Um, so it acts like a 401k, but it's, um, It's just different in that way. But I do want to mention that there's other forms of employee ownership. So there's employee-owned cooperatives, um, which is another form. You have ESOPs. And then some companies start building an employee ownership culture just by doing broad-based gain-sharing plans, um, which are cash. And it gives you a way to help grow employee ownership culture Mm. as you grow large enough to become an ESOP.
0: Great. And so before you were at the Institute, you were uh, on brand, right? On the the, um, internal teams at at a brand and then uh, also have some agency experience. Can you tell us about that if it's not going too far into the the ghosts of the past?
1: Yeah, the ghosts of the past. So I think it's an important part of the story though, right? Is um, my first big corporate job where I cut my business teeth was um, inside WPP. I worked for a company that got acquired by WPP. And so I was working um, inside that organization. And I kind of started feeling I was the, like, the evil HR person and I didn't really want to be there anymore and just because of the type of work I did. And it was really fast paced and fun. I learned a lot there. Um, But then this little brewery in Colorado calls me. We were tiny at the time. Says, "Hey, you want to come work here?" And of course, I said yes. And so that brewery is New Belgium Brewing. Um, If you haven't heard of New Belgium uh, Ranger Voodoo Ranger is kind of the hot brand right now. But Fat Tire at the time was. Fat Tire, yeah, of course, everybody,
0: every every beard drinker, every every craft brew aficionado loves uh, Fat Tire.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I became an executive. Um, I was a VP of organizational development and human resources there, and I think what's really important is what a lot of your other speakers have talked about is that that voice of the brand, the authenticity. Mm. Um, you know, one of the references maybe to learn a little bit more is um, any book by Douglas Holt um, that he's written. But you know, it's the brand culture cycle and the environmentalism that we had, the employee ownership that we had, the distributed leadership and participative management, how did all those things show up Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the relationship with our beer drinkers, um, the authenticity that we had in that connection to it, which really did lead to, you know, most, I was there for 13 years and most Mm -hmm. of those years were double digit revenue growth. Um, So we increased jobs, we increased revenue, we increased profitability. And so, um, you know, it was just a really powerful experience um, to do that. And so now, in addition to the Beister Institute, I also work as an independent outside director for ESOP companies. And we really do look at brand strategy as a way to, um, you know, we all love the vanity metrics, um, you know, the, 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 the likes on Twitter and the Instagram vibe and all that kind of stuff. But it all has to be, you know, for the point of growing the company. And again, when you grow a company in an ESOP, the people that work there that help grow that value are the one that participate in it and that that connection is really, really important.
0: yeah yeah. So using New Belgium kind of as a case study, can you talk a little bit specifically about the the brand image and the impact of brand image as they you know kind of adopted this uh, this strategy?
1: yeah you know I look back to the the growth years of fat tire for example mm-hmm. um when we were working on that project we had this uh, persona this brand persona we called him the tinker okay. and it was somebody who just had this like more bohemian attitude loved to you know Colorado lifestyle loved to ride bikes in the mountains um, we actually did some TV commercials and I still love those commercials and the thing was is, how that feeling emanated to the drinkers was actually how we were living inside the company. Yeah. Um, you know, we all had this passion, regardless of what job you were in, had this passion for what we were doing, but we were also um, admittedly uh, kind of a little bit rough around the edges, um, you know, so it wasn't human this polished- in other words. <laughs> yes. yes, It wasn't this polished and posh brand image. It was hopefully playful. Um, you know and that that authenticity and then you know jump forward to where they are now with voodoo ranger um you know that is another um connection point to the consumer of you know a voodoo's a persona um he's a character and so the brands were these characters that really came from what did the company stand for? What did we look like and and if you look at the the change from the Tinker persona to the voodoo persona, um, it really represents kind of the generational shift in the drinker Mm. and um, generational shifts in, in what society was doing. And so this is, you know, when you look at cultural brand, everybody's hoping to jump on the zeitgeist, right. You know, we want to ride that wave, Mm. but, um, it also won't show up. It'll show up as disingenuous right, right. if it's not matching how you're living as a firm.
0: Right. That's a great point. That's really a great point. I want to stick a pin in that. Um, and One of the things that you and I had talked about before we jumped on here was that these uh, professional services firms, uh, specifically for, for our context, like marketing, advertising, creative technology firms um, who are servicing clients, they are actually only number two behind manufacturers uh, in terms of creating ESOPs, which was like mind-blowing to me. I had no idea. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that? Maybe share an example of a a recent um, situation that you've heard of?
1: Yeah, so professional services firms in the context of this can also be like engineering firms. Um, So Mm -hmm. they're the firms that are a wonderful fit for ESOP because of their design um, and the levels of compensation, the people that work there. Um, and so uh, a good example of an ASOP is butler till in this world and they just um, they acquired digital hive or hive sorry digital hive um just recently and so this is another thing when we look at you know every business owner is going to come to a point where they want to kind of change their capital ownership where they're ready to orchestrate and exit mm-hmm. and you don't always have to sell to the big person. You don't have to sell to the WPPs. You can look for other ESOP companies as potential acquirers. And that's, um, I think the Butler Till example is a wonderful example of doing that. And it is an option for smaller companies to do that if the company itself isn't large enough to become an ESOP. ESOPs do need to be kind of a certain size, um, have a certain headcount um usually it's about 50 to 100 people that we start looking at it as a viable option. So mm-hmm. for some small agencies, doing it on their own might not be an option, but there there's a host of companies out there that help a company really retain that that genuine authenticity and that fierce independence a lot of agencies have which is super cool.
0: What is I'm just curious because like the 50 to 100 headcount might not necessarily be um you know uh Something that some of the audience members listening or watching this, like they may say, well, I'd never want to get to 50 or 100. Maybe I'm at 10, maybe I'm at 20 people, right? Um, what is the feasibility for an agency like that, of that size, to be acquired by um, a, a larger ESOP?
1: I think the feasibility is really strong. Mm-hmm. Um, what if it's like any other acquisition that you would do with any other company is you want to show your strong business performance results. And an ESOP acquisition acts a lot like any other one where you go through the due diligence and you go through that process with the company and you get acquired. So the process is no different than Uh it. It's just at the end of the day, who owns the company? It's the ESOP. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the trust that owns the company. But another option is to become an employee owned Um, co-op. And there, there are, a growing uh, number of companies that are cooperatives, they act different, they don't have the tax advantages that an ESOP does, but there are a lot of opportunities. And I guess that's the point is to to look at exploring this, not exclude it from your menu of options. When you look at an ownership transition, this should be on that menu. And if it's not just, you know, contacts, well, ideally contact the Bicent Institute, but contact somebody, there's a lot of state centers um, that can help companies you know, decide if this is a viable option, but, you know, get on that menu, contact people, network, um, find out what agencies are employee-owned, and there are resources that can help with that.
0: Let's face it, agency life looks very different than ever before. Remote and hybrid teams need better tools to help them communicate and access files, track their time, manage client budgets, and more. If you believe that it's time to streamline things once and for all, Workamajig is the all-in-one agency management platform built to help you do just that. Head over to workamajig.com forward slash thrive to learn more. Back to the show. That's great. And then just as a follow-up to that, you mentioned the co-op option. Does that have a lower headcount in terms of the parameter? It does.
1: Um, You know, and it's, it's just a different model in terms of how to administer it because it's not a qualified plan. Mm -hmm. Um, So the Mm -hmm. qualifications, uh, you know, our government gives us some tax advantages for ESOPs and anytime the government gives you some tax advantages, there's going to be something on the other side of it. Got it. Um, Got to make their money somehow. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's no way out on this. Um, So there are other options. Of doing this, um, or you know, coupling businesses up and and figuring out how to combine resources and and really make that a strategic advantage. But um yeah, I think the big part for me is when companies start engaging a, a broker or an exit planning firm, a lot of them don't have this option on there, or they kind of have some myths of so say, like esops are too difficult. Well, there's a lot of really successful esops um, you know, cooperatives have too much de- democratic governance. You get to design that governance. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of myths around this that are just fundamentally untrue when mm. you get to figuring out how are you going to run this kind of business? Yeah.
0: And, and the Institute sounds like it would be an absolutely great resource, um, you know, at yeah. least to, to start uncovering some of that. Um, so translating that, cause I can hear my audience in my head, translating all of this into numbers, um, Talk a little bit about potential uh, increase in revenue. Maybe not. I don't know if you could talk to profitability, but certainly increase in revenue uh, for agencies that might be considering uh, moving to either an ESOP or a co-op model.
1: Yeah. So there is an abundance of research, primarily around ESOPs. Um, of uh, so, I'm a fellow with Rutgers Institute or Rutgers University. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a an Institute for the Study of Employee Ownership and Profit Sharing. And there's also the National Center for Employee Ownership. And these two organizations have done so much research Mm. around this. And so employee-owned companies, ESOPs in particular, that have a participative culture. So that means that people are are actively working together in growing the business, um, usually with some kind of decision-making or distributed leadership. Um, I'm a fan of open book management too but um when you combine those two things we see higher performance than average companies mm-hmm. um so they average more in sales um they grow revenue faster their profitability is better and more recently um with the pandemic those have also been studied and the companies that were esops in the pandemic actually weathered it and they showed more resilience during the pandemic so they came out of it more successfully than non esop companies yeah so this is not um this is not New age, anything—it's just kind of been there for a long time. And a lot of companies see stable, sustainable growth. So that's one of the things um, that they've also seen is ESOP performance is more predictable. It does tend to be more stable and sustainable. So these are long-term, durable companies Mm -hmm. that we're looking at. Which um, you know, if if you're a volatile company and just kind of want to ride the highs and lows of stocks. Probably not a good fit for an ESOP, but most of the companies, you know, your audience wants that durability. They want that that um, predictability. Yeah. You know, and uh, and over and over the research has shown that to be true with ESOP and employee-owned companies.
0: Yeah, I mean the way that I sort of interpret all of this is that you know it's it's really no different from the idea that I talk about often on the show, which is like money follows value, right? So what you're doing is you're you're supporting the employees, right? Um, they're supporting you because they have skin in the game, right? And so obviously they're going to be more dedicated. They're going to um, you know just just bring more to the table, uh, for for lack of a better phrase. Um, so are really what we're talking about is this part of like conscious capitalism or conscious leadership. And like, what's the tie in there? Because for me, it seems very apparent.
1: Yeah. So one of the things I think, or I know that Aesops have in common is their long-termist attitude. So they're not looking because they're not in the public realm. Mm-hmm. Um, even though you're measuring stock, you're measuring value over time. Um, So you're not going to have the same effect that you have in the public um, realm where you have this ups and downs and very short-termist attitude on the quarter and, you know, living that's one experience. These companies have a long-termist attitude. And when you have a more long-term outlook, I think that also drives the conscious capitalism of, you know, what are we going to be like in five, dare we look at 10 years. And (laughs) so then that causes other things to, to come into mind. And, the other part of this is um, Lewis Kelso, who is who really helped get this law uh, into place in the 1970s. Um, his theory was that it's not that we um, it's not that capitalism is the issue is that we don't have enough capitalists. And so where a lot of people don't have access to, you know, they don't have money in their pocket to be able to go buy a company or buy into a company. This is a way of getting more people involved in the capitalist system. Dis- capitalistic experience inside a company and so more people are growing equity obviously stock equity but also it has a ripple effect of possibly more equity for more people to own things okay. and to own stock where a lot of people don't have access to that and so that also we know that more diverse companies are higher performing companies right so you have all these uh it's a multi-factor effect of right. there's a lot of long-term. overlap that I'm hearing. Oh, so, so much. Yeah. yeah. And so you're thinking long term, you're thinking about the diversity. You're thinking about uh stakeholder effects. You're, you know, thinking about now the environment. I'm I'm actually sitting in Colorado as I talk to you, and um, you know, the the western slope is like burning and in drought. And so it allows for these things to be part of the conscious of a company mm-hmm. because you're not just thinking about wow, I have to. Get my number for the next quarterly return. Right,
0: right. Well, I'm going to leave it there because that's that's a great soundbite. Um, we know that <laughs> numbers are not um, the be all end all. They're just you know part of the people and planet and um, you know profit sort of triumvirate. So Jennifer, thank you so much for being on the show. I um, I really enjoyed this conversation and you are just like a wealth of information. So I'll put all of those resources that you mentioned into the show notes and uh, thank you again. Thank you, Kelly. This episode has been brought to you by Workamajig, the number one creative agency management software. Show notes at thrive.workamajig.com. Find out how your creative agency can become more productive and more profitable. Schedule your demo at thrive.workamajig.com.